for that. Hey, the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been doing, last couple of months actually, we've been doing a, uh, I've been doing a teaching series on Moses. Uh, becoming a friend of God, listening to God, hearing and responding to God. And some of us at the church over the summer, some of you may have heard, we were doing this, this kind of Bible study book uh, called Experiencing God, where I'm always asking the question, um, God, what are you saying to us lately and what are we doing with it? So that's kind of been the question. Not only the summer, I believe it's, it's the ultimate question of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Because the relationship by nature is conversation. God, what are you saying to me? What should my children do with it? And uh, I think I heard somebody say that sometimes the study was helpful for that because it made them take kind of the drama out of God's speaking. Sometimes God speaks in very subtle but yet clear ways. But that's kind of been the question I've encouraged you to ask yourself a lot lately. What's God saying to you? You and what are you doing with it? But I also have been thinking a lot about the question, and I'll just switch it here, go to the next one. What is God saying to us lately? And what are we doing? Because I do think God speaks to groups of his followers, churches, and wants us to figure out what are we supposed to do. And I guess he speaks to us individually. But part of those part of I'll say this way, part of my burden is pastors. And the elders of the church to ask this question what's God saying to us? What are we supposed to be doing as a community? And from the from the Henry Black who we study, but also some scripture, there's a passage of scripture that's kind of sat on my heart a lot lately. And this is when Jesus in John chapter 6 is talking about himself and about his, uh, being sent from God. But he says this he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. None of us here who are followers of Jesus are followers apart from the fact that God has started something in your heart and stirred something in you through your Jesus. You might be able to recount your story, but the understory of all of our stories is God is doing something stirring in our hearts. So this gets this has got me thinking a lot about people I know, and I'm sure people you know, and maybe this will be here this morning, that aren't this that would not even consider themselves followers of Jesus. Some people you might know. I might know, neighbors, friends, you might even think are far from Jesus. And you might, I've had a handful of conversations this summer that just stick out to me as people that I think, when would they ever go to church? Would they, you know, because some of us may have grew up in church, they maybe have influence for church. We have a lot, you have a lot of friends and neighbors, I have a lot of friends and neighbors who they don't think about Jesus at all. They don't think about God that often. And this, this passage, this quote from Jesus, makes me think, okay, that only happens if God draws them. God draws them ultimately because we're asking God to draw them prayer. He pushes us to pray for God to do that. But none of us are going to convince somebody to become Christian. Many of you probably have conversations with people that turn into a debate and try to prove to them Christianity is right. And it, those kind of conversations very rarely yield any. But this is a question that's been kind of sitting on me a lot lately um, with regard to Exodus and what's our role, and what's our role in getting and communicating to people and helping other people understand the message of Jesus and what's our role in praying, asking God to draw people. I said I've had, just in the last, probably last month, I've had conversations where I just walk away thinking, hey Jesus, I believe this is the true statement. Nobody's going to come to you unless God draws them. And what, what are we supposed to do? 
one of the things you'll you'll hear me talk about more in the future is encouraging you to pray for people that you know personally that you think well they'll never they they'll never go to church, they'll never follow Jesus, they're so far from God. I'm gonna encourage you to pick one or two people and start praying for them. Seek God who move in their heart and draw them to Jesus. It's not about pressure on you, it's not about putting pressure on you that slide a track out of their door or anything. It's more about compelling you and asking you to ask God to pray for But then secondly, and from today, actually this is once in a probably three year kind of thing, we're going to show a video of the sermon today. It's not going to be me. It's a British guy that's cooler accent. Alright? It's from a, it's from a uh, series called the Alpha Film Series. Go to that next slide. Alpha is a, is a, it's a basically a 12-week kind of all this curriculum. It's a film series designed by a church in London by, by a pastor named Nicky Gumbel. You'll see him on here and part of the kind of the different kind of video. Specifically, Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And so it's an introduction to Christianity. Uh, there's 15 different videos, 20, 25 minutes each. This particular one is one of the earlier videos, and it's called Who is Jesus? So for some of you, um, what he's saying is stuff maybe you already know, but honestly, when I first saw this video, there's some things I thought, oh, I didn't know that. So I want you to look at this, watch this video through two different sets of eyes. One, obviously, your own set of eyes. Because I, if you have been around access at all, we are very set on the fact that we follow Jesus. So we're very Jesus-centered, and you might think, well, that's an obvious for Christians. Not, that's not always an obvious thing in Christianity. We are followers of Jesus, we're not simply Christians. So it's, it's focusing on Jesus. So I want you to see through your own eyes what is maybe God saying to you. But I also want you to see and watch this through the eyes of somebody you know that's not a Christian, that has maybe even a little interest in church. And I want you to kind of see how they might experience this. It's not just about showing the video, it's about follow-up conversations. I, I had a friend of mine who's not a Christian watch this video, and he had, to, he had three pages of notes he was excited to talk about. And, I, and it was a really good conversation. So this is, this video, we're not saying this video changes lives, but it's a great way to start conversations. This, sometime in the future, the whole series, hopefully we're going to be figuring out some way to use Texas. I don't know when or how it's going to work. But I want you to watch this particularly. But I want you to think, not again about your, just about your own understanding of Jesus. I want you to think, even as you're watching this, about somebody you know, not Christian, doesn't follow Jesus, whatever reason, how they might experience this, and even as you're watching this, even ask God to start stirring that person's heart to respond to Jesus. Alright? So again, this is uh, this is episode two of a 15 episode alpha film series. Nikki Gumbel is the pastor from the church in London that's talking, and the rest of it I think will generally speak for itself. So just watch this and I'll come back up on it. It's 25 minutes long.
Over two million people came to follow him. That's one third of the world's population. He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure. Time magazine called him the most influential person who has ever lived. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Um, uh, 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 I think, uh, uh, I believe he's the person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Are you placing the way you chose to? If you read the Bible, like, don't they think I can believe in all of that? Everything. You can be any, but you can't believe everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, I guess it's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus is probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. For much of my life, I wasn't Christian. I come from a family of trial lawyers, barristers. My father was a barrister, my mother was a barrister, my sister is a barrister. My son qualified as a barrister, my daughter qualified as a barrister, both my grandfathers on both sides were barristers, my uncle was a barrister, if we'd had a cat, it would definitely have been a barrister. My father was a, a Jew, a secular Jew, he escaped the Holocaust, many of his family died in the Holocaust. My mother was not a church girl, my father described himself as an agnostic, and I came to the conclusion that I was an atheist as a teenager, and I was quite an argumentative atheist. Not that I had to convert people to atheism, but if anyone tried to convert me to Christianity, then I had a lot to say on the subject. And I was quite suspicious of Christians. I'd come across one or two of them in my gap year, and they had these smiles, which I found deeply suspicious. <laughs> and in my first year at university, I had roommates to my great friend, Nicky Lee, and I warned him against these Christians. I said, don't let them into your room, whatever you do. But it was too late. He'd met some, and one time he and his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Sylvia, came back, and they said that they had become Christians. I was horrified. I mean, they were such lovely people. And I thought, how can I help them? I really didn't know anything about it, so I thought, I better investigate. So I managed to find this old Bible. And that night I started reading it. I started beginning of the New Testament. I read Matthew's Gospel, Mark, Luke. I got about halfway through John's Gospel, about three in the morning, I fell asleep. The following day I carried on reading. All that day, all the next day, all the day afterwards. I was a student, so I didn't have any work to do. And when I got to the end of the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it's true. You can't prove Christianity Mathematically, you can't prove it scientifically. Science is obviously very important, but science answers a different set of questions. Science answers the questions when and how did this world come into being? But it can't answer the question who and why. Supposing I had a cake here, which I'd make, and I give it to a scientist. The scientist will be able to answer the question how it was made. They may be able to tell you when it was made, but only I can tell you who made it and why I made it. 
Only the creator of the cake can do that. Only I can tell you, I made that cake. And I can tell you why I made that cake. And it's the same with this universe. Only the creator can reveal who made this world and why he made it. And the claim of Christianity is that he has done that. The creator has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And the evidence is not scientific evidence, that's not the only kind of evidence, but historical evidence. When I was a barrister, that's what we relied on. We relied on historical evidence we presented to a jury. It was things that had happened in the past. They weren't there. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, it's a step of faith based on evidence. And I myself could not be a Christian if I didn't believe there was evidence. I couldn't just take a blind leap of faith. For me, faith in Jesus is a step of faith based on good historical evidence. Why start with Jesus, you might say. I didn't even believe there was a God. But I came to believe in God through Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus strongly suggests that this world has a creator. And that that creator is to be seen in terms of, through the lens of, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there are actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus. As to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, he described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from within the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less stuff there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War. 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous history of Rome, a 
and 900 year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So, in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking for. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Holt, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings and no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he? Well, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain. And he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness, and human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job and being tempted. He experienced bereavement and suffering and torture and even death. Many today we say, okay, he was a human being, but only a human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. Others would say he was much more than that. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, said, I don't think we'll let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. He went on to say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? There are two parts to this idea. First is, what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's the end of the argument. But if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? So, what did Jesus say about himself? First piece of evidence is the fact that his teaching was centered on himself. Most great religious teachers point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me. Look at God. Jesus, who personified humility in pointing people to God, pointed to himself. He said, look at me, come to me. We've talked about this search for meaning and purpose, that feeling of like a spiritual hunger that other things don't quite satisfy. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who can satisfy that spiritual hunger. Addiction is a major problem in our society. Jesus said, is the Son, in other words, if, if he himself sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
Then there's all the stuff we carry around. Worry, anxiety, guilt, fear. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. If you see me, you see God. Forgiveness is right at the heart of Christianity. Jesus went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, if someone sins against you, then you can forgive them, but you can't just walk up to anyone and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, the lawyers said, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus claimed to be able to do that. In fact, Jesus said that he came to give his life so that people could be forgiven. One of the most direct claims Jesus made is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now making a claim like this was seen by the religious leaders to be blasphemy. It's tantamount to a claim to be God, and it was punishable by death by stoning. People picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think when you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. It is an astonishing claim. And a claim like that needs to be tested. If you think about it, there are only three possibilities. It was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it wasn't true, in which case he was a fraud. Or, it was not true, and he simply didn't realize it. He genuinely thought he was the son of God, in which case he was deluded. I think we'd say he was insane. Logically, there is only one other possibility. And that is, it's true. He was telling the truth. C.S. Lewis, Cambridge professor, best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He put it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane, or else be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So was Jesus right in what he said about himself? What evidence is there to support his claims? Well, the first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gather to hear Jesus teach. And on one occasion, on a mountain like this, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been widely acknowledged amongst the greatest teaching of all time. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization. Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbour as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then this, totally revolutionary. Love your enemies. In fact, we've advanced in every field of science and technology, yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you might expect God to speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalised. 
feeding the hungry, healing the sick. His character has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine calls him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of Western humanity. He was a person in whom even his enemies could find no fault, and whose friends said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Of course, it could be suggested he was a kind of clever combat who set out deliberately to deceive people. He read all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and I'm going to fulfill them all in my life. The difficulty with that theory is that, first of all, the sheer number, and then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There were prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. Clever command and go and say, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. <laughs> then the final piece of evidence is conquest of death. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us. Because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate sadistic. One in one die. Go to the funeral. The coffin is lowered into the ground. It looks absolutely fine. And it is. Unless Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to life. In which case, death has been conquered. But is this just wishful thinking? Uh, wish me dead. Well, I'm just told, I'm not, I don't know, I can't say yes or no. Yes, I do believe the Jesus goes from the dead. As a plan of science, I think that's pretty possible. <laughs> Yes, yes, I did. I definitely don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he did. No, Jesus did not. Did not come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. Well, it could be used as a metaphor for it. Doing a, a drug trip. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. The relationship that I have with him is good enough. I'm not sure I haven't looked that up. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know. There are four pieces of evidence for the resurrection. The first is his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained how Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day. People have come up with all kinds of explanations. For example, maybe the authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when people started saying that he'd risen from the dead? Or perhaps the robbers stole the body. But when the disciples heard that Jesus had, had been seen, they ran to the tomb, and they found that the tomb was not empty. Inside the tomb were the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. That only valuable thing that a robber might have taken was still there. 
The grey clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when the butterfly has emerged. And the piece that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and put in a different place. And when they saw that, they believed. The second was his presence through the disciples. Jesus was seen on more than 11 occasions, on one occasion by a group of around 500 people. People say, well, it could have been a hallucination. Well, hallucination does happen among highly strong, very nervous, or highly imaginative people, or people who are sick or on drugs. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. They were tough fishermen. They were tax collectors, and tax collectors do not hallucinate. The third piece of evidence is the transformation that we see in the disciples. Here is a group of people who were disillusioned despairing that their leader had died. And then suddenly they were transformed. They started saying, we've seen Jesus, he's really alive. And they went around telling everybody. Later on, practically all of them were killed, crucified, tortured, beheaded, because of what they believed. And if they were deceiving people, all they had to do was say, no, 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 no it's not actually true. But they never said that, because they knew it was true. It had totally transformed their lives. And as a result, this extraordinary movement swept around the whole known world. And it's a movement without precedent in the history of humanity. And fourth, it's still happening today. There are now over 2.3 billion Christians around the world of every ethnicity, continent, nationality, economic, social, and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. So what are we to make of Jesus? It seems to me clear that Jesus really did claim to be a man whose identity was God. And when we look at the evidence of his teaching, his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, to say he was insane or a fraud seems to me absurd, illogical, actually unbelievable. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. And when I looked at the evidence, when I read the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it is true. I didn't want to become a Christian, because I thought if I became a Christian, life would be totally miserable from that moment onwards. So I tried to put it off. I thought I'll put off becoming a Christian to my deathbed. And then I realized, that would not be intellectually honest. So, very reluctantly, I kind of said, okay, yes. And at that moment, I can still remember that moment so clearly. It dropped from here to my head, being convinced it was true, to here in my heart, having an experience of a relationship with Jesus. And finding what, I guess looking back, unconsciously, I've been searching for all my life. Something that provided ultimate meaning and purpose to my life. It was the very last place on earth that I expected to find it. But, at that moment, I found that what Jesus said was true. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and life in all its fullness. It really is true that God has revealed himself in Jesus. 
Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is hope beyond this life. There is hope for this life. Right now, in this life, in an encounter with Jesus, we find life and life in all its fullness. Thank you. 